Welcome to Off Center, the podcast about digital narrative and algorithmic narrativity. My name is Scott Retberg, and I'm the director of the Center for Digital Narrative at the University of Bergen. In this podcast, I'll have conversations with the researchers at the Center, as well as other experts in the field to discuss topics revolving around digital storytelling and its impact on contemporary culture. In this episode, we'll talk about 20th century literature, contemporary literature, electronic literature, the electronic book review, and Joe Tabby's personal journey in the field. Let's dive right in. Today, I'm joined with Joe Tabby. Hi, Joe. Scott, hi. Joe is a professor of English at the University of Bergen, and he's leading the electronic literature node at the center. Uh, just maybe to say a little bit about your background before we begin, Joe, uh, you have a what I would say is a fascinating and diverse uh, background as a researcher, scholar, and publisher, which we'll be talking quite a bit about, of uh, digital and print literature. Um, and your your work going back includes a lot of books, uh, which is you know fairly rare, I guess, among the <laughs> electronic literature community. But you, you started out writing about postmodern American literature and media ecology. Uh, you've done biographies uh, or a biography of the, the work uh, of uh, novelist William Gaddis and his life um, to a new book on uh, literary posthumanism. Uh, and what we're mostly going to be talking about today is your work in two other modes, uh, the electronic book review, um, which is a open access journal that began back in the 1990s, and also your work with the Electronic Literature Organization and your your critical work and think about the research infrastructure of electronic literature now for more than two decades. Welcome, and maybe we could start by talking about the Electronic Book Review. We could we can do that. Yes, and uh, I. Just say that all of those elements, uh, the print and the digital, keeping them together is, is really one of the things uh, EBR does. And uh, that, that's something that um, I think the uh, electronic literature field needs to do. And it's just more interesting when you're talking about things that happened long ago in literature and how they have changed mm -hmm. or maybe are coming back now. Yeah, and um, I, I guess you're a scholar of uh, contemporary literature, uh, but if we think about contemporary now, it moves on a sort of different time span uh, than electronic literature, the well, sort of the speed of the internet. Yeah, well, and contemporary is kind of gone. You know, I, I just finished this introduction to literary posthumanism. So all of the humanistic elements are not necessarily going to continue, whereas many of the things that were before humanism like epic literature, for example, mm -hmm. it is entirely possible that in ELIT, the epic will be more important than the novel. I heard one researcher refer to the Gutenberg parentheses. Yeah. Uh, this is this sort of idea that print culture, print publication, and literature around print uh, was sort of a parenthetical moment in the, in the history of narrative and the history of, uh, of storytelling. Yeah, it, it, it could well be. And that's one narrative that uh, we might follow for the next 
next 10 years and, uh, you know, kind of see if, um, if that's where it's going, if it's a parenthesis or, or if the humanism is just becoming stricter and, you know, uh, more unwilling to move. And then it becomes what I would call transhumanism, mm-hmm. where we just, you know, empower the human more and more. And you see where that gets us. And, of course, eventually we're going to be talking about uh, uh, computer programs that are that are writing literature. Uh, so, of course, we're, we've truly reached the post-human uh, moment in literature when uh, when some of the text is actually produced by, uh, by AI. Let's come back to that later. Uh, this is something we're doing a lot of talking about in the center. But let's talk first about, uh, about EBR and how it began um, back in, I guess, the mid-'90s. Well, let's see. It was the the year that I moved to Chicago, and that was right after I did a seminar, a workshop uh, with Kate Hales. Mm-hmm. What year was that? Ninety five. I think ninety four, ninety five. Yes. You know, in that seminar with Hales, there were already three or four artists who um, were working in electronic literature, literary artists uh, doing that. So as I began the uh, work on literary postmodernism that uh, was my field, that got me the job in Chicago, I was also talking about this other current movement. And this was really pretty close to the the launch of the first uh, web browsers. Uh, if I recall correctly, right? So, so what was that moment for you when you uh, when you saw the World Wide Web and and began to rethink uh, what you could do with it as a literary scholar? Oh, I would I would say that the Hales workshop was it because uh, I would see Stephanie Strickland and Marjorie Lucebrink after all of our formal sessions actually um, making some work in the other room where that was getting done. And um, it was the first experience I had of, you know, being in a scholarly domain, mm-hmm. um, but participating in active making mm-hmm. um, or observing that or, and to some extent writing about it. So that sort of interface between uh, the creative workers, the the creative authors, um, and the critics, where they were sort of sitting together in, in the same room and participating in each other's uh, processes and talking about the work? That was the definitive difference. And of course, there was a lot that um, you know we, all, we were all learning. We didn't all know the technology and the IT behind it. And you know that, that could be learned, and it was. And uh, also, you learned how to make sure that the things you don't know, you're collaborating with someone who does. Now it was. I, I think it was important, and it, well, it is important to note that uh, EBR was one of the first open access journals. That it was sort of built around this idea uh, that you didn't need a subscription, that you didn't even necessarily need to be someone who's formally a, a scholar to engage with this work. Yeah, and just now they're having open access um, publications where the peer review is also accessible. Mm-hmm. So that's a really strict sanction of the peer review process, bringing it into a more general availability, and everybody can be a peer reviewer. I don't think it will work, okay. personally. Yeah. Um, crowd peer review? Yeah, crowd peer review. But if it does, then we have a paradigm shift. What about, there's a lot of things that are, as I, as I think about it, that are innovative or, or somewhat unique to the model of, of EBR. Rather than peer review, formally you sort of have this peer-to-peer review, a different model of, of peer review. You also have the model of publication that's 
not sort of blocked off into issues that come out, say, once every quarter. Why is that? Why do you think that's important that the publications uh, come out as they're done? That the publications... Of of the individual essays and and reviews and and so forth on on ABR, um, rather than having this sort of fixed model of like it comes out uh, once a quarter or or twice a year that is sort of on this ongoing rolling base. That's how writing works. And if it can come out when it's done and when the author and the publishers are ready without having to follow the quarterly or yearly or book model, then um, it becomes more part of the everyday and it becomes something more like the experience that the bards had in Epic mm-hmm. Time to go back okay. to that to go back to that model because they weren't scheduling things quarterly or by some arbitrary date they were scheduling things by where they were traveling on a given um, moment and uh, what they were writing about um, and able to or able to or heard and were able to memorize and make variations on when they get to the next town and this is another thing that the bards, I guess, to continue the metaphor, would, would change their story uh, on the basis of, of who they encountered. And I think community is something I also think about with, with EBR, and not only community in the sense of, a, of people gathering together, but also the sort of discursive community, that what you see in EBR is often discourse. People uh, pick up on things that other people have written. People come in and debate. Um, and you have this idea of the, the repost or ripost. Yeah. And um, the P-O-S-T is all in caps because you're posting um, that uh, tough response and uh, that harshness. It's being posted. Kind of a nice harshness. Though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you've got, uh, you know, Kate Hale's like uh, reposting uh, and even um, somewhat uh, attacking, then that can make your work noticeable. Yeah, I think back to uh, sort of a defining thing for the, the fields of game studies and electronic literature was this cyber text uh, debate when you mentioned Kate Hales with this sort of debate with Marku uh, Eskalinen about whether we should be thinking about games and, and game studies from a sort of narrative or uh, literary perspective. Um, and that really, in a way, that sort of opened up this, uh, was part of opening up this whole field of, of game studies. Yeah, so I think that's something that's that's really interesting to think about with the electronic book review is that it is this space of of debate, of discourse. Another thing that, that's interesting that I'd like to ask you about with EBR is it seems to appeal to multiple fields. Um, certainly, it became one of the principal loci of electronic literature criticism. Um, but also, you have that alongside debates about the environment, about media ecology, about uh, constrained writing. How do you think it's sort of bringing these fields together and giving us new ways of comparing and contrasting and pulling ideas from them. By extending our communities, to go back to that theme, and um, collaborating, that's the way um, it'll, it, it will happen um, and needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it doesn't happen, uh, then you haven't supplanted print or taken it to places that, where print is unable to go. You need to uh, have people in different fields articulating what they're doing and how a field that is emerging differs from what's possible in print, Mm -hmm. Um, how it's better, and if in some cases it's um, not better. 
that's where the critical component, critical communities, the two C's, that's what one gets uh, when, when EB, in EBR when it's working. Yeah, well, and I, I do think that it's uh, it's been one of these places that really did expand, expand the reach and, and the community of electronic literature. So, for example, I know people like Steve Tomasula, uh, an experimental novelist, or, or, or Lance Olson. I see his work. He sees our work. Um, we sort of have this uh, experimental tradition in, in print literature, interacting with this uh, experimental tradition in, in digital literature. So I think it does kind of fulfill that function of expanding the reach of, of both sorts of uh, scholarly communities and, and creative communities. So I think that is a, a real accomplishment. Let me just pick up with Olson and Tamasula. It was Steve Tamasula who uh, did an interview with Ann Burdick. Uh, and published it in a in an in an art magazine, not a literary magazine. I, I met Steve because he was in Chicago, and I arrived in Chicago when he had graduated. Um, so uh, he was very much a presence and introduced me to Anne. So um, I had Steve as a very welcome, almost co-editor, and uh, Anne as a designer who designed uh, the first issues of uh, of EBR, and. Um, that really kept going and kept changing. There were always uh, new talents at every conference I would attend in um, different dissertations that I would read mm -hmm. um, or in the work that Fiction Collective 2 was doing that Lance Olson was very much a part of. Mm -hmm. Actually, I was a, when I was a master's student, I was a, a graduate assistant for uh, Fiction Collective 2. So there's a... Interesting uh, little bit of overlap uh, when yeah. I was at Illinois and, State. And these, these kinds of interactions are what uh, define the community. It, it's not like everybody joining in. As happens um, in just the kind of default for social media. In addition to social media, contrast here is the sort of traditional academic uh, journal, uh, which usually has some kind of a, uh, institutional support. Uh, another sort of remarkable thing about EBR, if we look back now longer than 25 years of, of, uh, of publication, is that uh, it's been run on a shoestring the whole time. It's sort of mainly been you and you sort of pull people into it. Um, and yet, how many articles have been published over, over the years? Uh, more than, would you say more than... 800? I've never counted them. Yeah. <laughs> but very many. There's certainly, an, it was enough to fill uh, two volumes uh, uh, in the post-digital book that you put out a, a couple of, or two books that you just put out a couple of, of years ago. And that was just sort of highlights uh, of debates uh, from the Electronic Book Review. If you look at the cover of those two volumes of uh, collections from EBR, um, I, I, I collected one set or uh, maybe two, um, but then other collaborators over the over the two decades um, that I worked with edited their own individual sections. So you have a whole section edited by um, Anne, for example, mm -hmm. uh, Anne Burdick, and uh, another one by uh, Eric Rasmussen. Eric, for sure. And um, the people that I interacted with over the years, um, that was a continuing interaction. And I think that is necessary, more necessary than in the, that kind of continuity than, say, having a literary canon. Yeah. It's having a extended and a continuing community. 
uh, that's what we can do. Well, let's talk a little bit. Let's turn now to uh, electronic literature and the uh, electronic literature field. You and I debated uh, for a long time whether electronic literature uh, was a field or what would uh, potentially make it a field. But if we think about it as it is a field now, there's a big difference between writing a biography of, of William Gaddis and uh, going to meetings and, and talking about research infrastructure and sort of uh, planning out the structure of an emerging field. So what was it about electronic literature? You, you mentioned the sort of seeing the, the authors create, but what else uh, has it been about electronic literature as a field that's made you continue to be interested in, in engaging with it? It's not that um, like there's a set of great works that are mm -hmm. emerging and that are going to be um, you know the things that everybody teaches every year in the course. That's the Harold Bloom Canon mm -hmm. um, model, and uh, that's not going to fly, I don't think. Yeah, but uh, it's the collaborative communities, as I said before, that emerge. They do depend on having jobs in academia that are not precarious because mm -hmm. you can't form a meaningful community unless you have uh, stability in your academic and professional life. But what is it about electronic literature that you think is, uh, is important? Or why, why should uh, people listening to this be interested in electronic literature rather than just going off and reading Shakespeare? Because it's easier for those whose training is, for example, in the visual or material arts to create literary project. It's, it's as comfortable for them to do that as it is for somebody who studied uh, creative writing. Mm -hmm. So it's that sort of hybridity. That's really what, what makes it, is interactions. And um, I, I did write down a few uh, comments. Okay, I'll by, let you do like a line or something. Comments by <laughs> Anne, by Anne Burdick, which uh, you know, resonated with, I continue to do, um, even after Anne you know, stopped updating and redesigning the journal every two or three years, as it was for the, the first wave of EBR. My collection my, was the two volumes in uh, post-digital from Bloomsbury. Anne's collection was uh, Digital Humanities. And uh, that was co-written with Johanna Drucker, Peter Lunenfeld, Todd Pressner, and Jeffrey Snop. So she structured her entry into the humanities, which was a critical engagement with the humanities and, it, and in a way a post-humanities in a way that's very similar to what I described about uh, the post-digital volumes mm -hmm. I put together um, where there were multiple editors who collected their own favorite grouping. Yeah, yeah. yes. That sort of co-authorship I think is becoming uh, more common and more distinctive about the, the field of, of digital culture, I think, of, of what we're planning on doing with the center. We won't completely abandon the idea of uh, single authorship, um, but I think it's becoming much more commonplace to think in terms of the collective, uh, of the lab, of, of the possibility of, of writing books uh, together. Let me turn a little bit now to uh, the work that you've kind of done with research uh, infrastructure. It's one of the things we'll be dealing with in the center. Why is that important? Uh, why should literary scholars uh, be concerning themselves with databases? Databases mostly disappear. And um, literary arts, if they're going to be uh, read and uh, influential on uh, the generations, need to be held on to, uh, need to be accessible. 
we've uh, got pretty good uh, accessibility for the, the print uh, canon. Mm-hmm. But accessibility will work differently for yeah. the born digital. Yeah, I mean, I, I think of uh, electronic literature itself. One of the reasons why I think we have things like uh, databases and uh, archival collections is that uh, I was teaching electronic literature and I kept noticing that uh, as I'd redo my syllabus for the following year, about half the works uh, that were on the syllabus last year were no longer uh, accessible on the internet. Yes. Um, so I think there's something about uh, about documentation, about memory that's important, and also just the fact that libraries didn't know and to a certain degree still don't know, you know, how to handle these works. That's one reason why I, I do hope that in the center we can uh, rejuvenate the Consortium on Electronic Literature, which is a collection of databases. For the consortium to be sustainable, the different databases need to be in conversation with one another. Well, let's back up on that. Uh, because it was so important to sort of building this field, it's not that there was one database, certainly the one that we host uh, at the University of Bergen, the ELMSIP Electronic Literature Knowledge Base, uh, has been an important one. There was the Electronic Literature directory uh, started at the ELO. There's a French language database, uh, Uh There's new databases uh, beginning with uh, Arabic electronic literature, African electronic literature. So this has sort of been one of the, the distinctive aspects of the field as it's grown internationally. And the consortium is essentially organizations that are that are doing database and doing different kinds of, of documentation of literature. So why is it important that they're in conversation with each other and uh, have, sort of have this central uh, cell consortium? Um, for the same reason that uh, it's important that articles written about new works reference established scholarship, because uh, you can tell what's the same and what's different. Um, and also, if you're having this conversation actively, then you have more readers, then you are able to offer courses that differ every year, but talk about the same themes and the same concerns. Mm-hmm. And when you have that, then you've got eyes on the databases, and you, you know when you need to ask the IT folks to intervene. Yeah, and I guess maybe standards that are that are evolving um, and, and looking at how different databases uh do that and and learning from uh, each other. And also, I I think one of the things that that these databases have done is sort of show people how do you actually begin to build a community, begin to build a a field, and uh, maybe counterintuitively, in a way, starting up a database is is a good way to, to gather a community around that set of knowledge. Yeah, so we're gonna have a lot of balls in the air at the center. We're going to take on and start to do some of that actual uh, institutional support for the electronic book review that in spite of the fact that it's sort of made EBR a kind of outsider, I don't want to say rogue, but sort of independent uh, venture in comparison to other academic journals. Uh, but hopefully that'll relieve some of the uh, some of the stress of every year kind of coming up with, with resources to, to host the, the journal. We'll be doing that. We'll be doing the ELMSIP Electronic Literature Knowledge Base, or what we're beginning to think of as the Digital Narrative Database, uh, DND, which will bring in all these different sorts of digital narrative, things like social media narratives, computer game uh, narratives, these new story generation uh, systems, 
AR, VR, looking at a bunch of different narrative concerns in addition to electronic literature per se. And then the, the glossary project. Uh, can you say a little bit about that, uh, the glossary, and why it would be necessary? Well, um, there's a database, uh, Rosie Bradiati's um, Glossary of uh, Posthumanism, uh, which she did with uh, Halova, the colleague. That uh, is, you know, is all made on, together online. It's published as a book now. And then it's published as another book called More Posthuman Glossary. <laughs> the thing about that project is the authors just kept coming. I don't know the number. I'd have to, to I, I haven't counted them. It is a field. I guess find. as people became more and more post-human. Uh, <laughs> every, yeah, yeah everyone, stopped counting. <laughs> <laughs> everyone um, wanted to talk about why we became more post-human uh, as they were becoming post-human. Yeah. And at the same time, we've also got an absolutely necessary critical post-humanism database alongside that that developed at the same time. And... My feeling is that the two are more likely to last, even though they're quite different, by being uh, separate, and by being two separate databases and having one group reading the other. And the glossary then is this sort of open access glossary of critical concepts, right? Yeah. Um, and that's something I, I, I want to integrate more carefully into the consortium structure uh, at the center. Pretty much what the critical posthumanism site did mm -hmm. is give a place for sustained reflection, both uh, short descriptions of works and encyclopedic entries. That's something that uh, is done one way in a critical database, a database that has criticism and critique marked as its point. And then there's just the, you know, like bring in all of the, the products. Just make sure that every topic is covered that the Bradiati database brings. So again, having, having those two in contention and balance mm -hmm. uh, is, is useful. Maybe one, we, we got to wrap up pretty soon, but uh, maybe one question I'd like to, to throw out to you or one of a couple last questions is why is literature important to electronic literature? This is something I've, I've sort of heard debated before. I'm interested in where you sort of fall on that, on that spectrum uh, of how important it is to look at these things from a literary context. One uh, alternative that has stuck in my head is uh, one that John Cayley at uh, one of the ELO conferences tossed out, and, I, I, and that is that uh, maybe we should talk about it as literary arts. Hmm. And what I like about that is that that phrase um, brings the art community into into contact with the literary community, and that's that that distinguishes it a bit from print literature field. Well, another question, I guess, following up on that is that uh, we're looking at digital narrative. We're, we're looking at, uh, in addition to to things like hypertext novels, we'll be looking at things like uh, how did Donald Trump become uh, elected president. Uh, through uh, conspiracy theories uh, like QAnon. I, and one of the things I'm hoping, and I'm wondering what you think about this, is that our studies of electronic literature can somehow inform our understanding of, of other kinds of digital narratives. Our understanding of narratives? Yeah, we have to know what follows what. Um, and we have to know what uh, kinds of uh, futures can we anticipate 
um, with a given set of material. Uh, and again, I'll, I'll now quote that line from Anne Burdick um, that she used to describe her uh, Digital Humanities book. She calls herself a co-author and designer of a compact, game-changing report on the state of contemporary knowledge production. And that's how I think we need to look at it, is that it's not, a, it's not about producing literature so much. It's not about extending humanism. It's about knowledge production and uh, questioning knowledge that is artificial and false mm-hmm. and criticizing that. That's, I, I think, the necessity. And all of the other elements that uh, you know I've come up with and we've come up with uh, about forming communities, um, keeping databases in place, and such like, that's the point, is to have a knowledge that can be carried forward mm-hmm. and that can be narrativized. That's one way that knowledge is conveyed, is through narratives. Narratives that mm-hmm. that uh, reference actual happenings uh, that are going on around us now. Maybe as we are becoming digital or becoming uh, post-human, I, I think that's one of the things that most interests me about electronic literature is, is how it's sort of reflecting uh, these changes in how we think and communicate and um, are sort of subjects uh, of, of platform culture. As Soren Pold and Christian Ulrich Anderson uh, would refer to it. Well, um, we got to wrap up shortly, but uh, one last big question that I have for you. You're someone who's been a teacher for 30-some years now. And the center, I think, is an opportunity for 10 years to make a a big contribution to uh, digital narrative. But what do you think uh, the legacy uh, of your work, uh, of EBR, um, and of your upcoming work in the center uh, should be? What do you hope that uh, the next generation takes away from it? The works that are being made now, selection of them are being talked about 10 years from now. Then that's a sign of that the center has uh, done what it's uh, meant to do. If the conversations will keep going after um, I'm no longer participating in those conversations, directly after I've retired and after um, others have come into the center. And um, that means that academia needs to have the same kinds of continuing additions that uh, we've managed to do just with the affordances of uh, the digital environment for, for literary studies. So it's really keeping the conversation going and, and changing it um, and uh, articulating differences and similarities as we go. Mm-hmm. And who knows, maybe it'll save literature, uh, looking at enrollment numbers of, of, uh, of literary subjects uh, lately. Uh, an, an alternative is needed to the humanist structure that we still have in place but are not supporting financially. I hope you enjoyed this episode about electronic literature with Joseph Tabby. Next episode, I'll be talking with Jason Nelson of the Center for Digital Narrative about integrated artistic research and how research practice serves an experimental function in understanding digital narrativity. So tune in for the next episode. 
Make sure to follow us on social media by searching your favorite network for the Center for Digital Narrative to keep up to date with our next episodes. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you for listening. 